Okay, we're recording. All right, here we are. Another week, Screen Heat Miami. Yes. For me, it's really hot because I've been getting out of the house more. I had that second vaccine. It's been two weeks, so it's kicked in. I've been out in the hot Miami weather. It's been, you know, it's been kind of nice, though. It's been a little, a lot nicer, you know, April. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, April, we're usually like scorching. But Screen Heat right. Miami is scorching. So absolutely. I guess that's Hotter our replacement. Than ever. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're we're getting there. We're not, like I said, we're not even in the pre-summer months yet. But uh, but the screens are lighting up nonetheless. We all know it's Oscar month. We all know that there's tons of buzz all over the world, including our beloved topic, the streaming wars. But but of course, we are two halves of Screen Heat Miami with your co-host JL Martinez and I'm Kevin Sharpley, and we are always sponsored by our friends at the Miami Media and Film Market, Cinevision, Chemical, and Kajik Multimedia. Oh, yes. So uh, I really want to uh, also highlight our guest today uh, because, you know, he was he was such a great interview and someone that really just kind of brings various generations of, of filmmaking and content creation, particularly in the television space. Uh, but yeah, that was that, that interview with Fred cyber was something, huh? Yeah. And, you know, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but the breakdown and democratization of content as a whole and the blurring of lines, especially, you know, you look at what's happening with Marvel, WandaVision, it's happening more so now than even in the Netflix era where they had Luke Cage, Daredevil, Jessica Jones. But the storytelling that's happening with WandaVision and now the uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier is certainly as cinematic as any of their movies. And then you want to talk Star Wars, The Mandalorian, mm -hmm. you know, The Mandalorian, which a lot of people are saying has re-energized the Star Wars franchise. So right. I'm thinking less, you know, is television content just television content or, you know, episodic content, just episodic content anymore. And more that storytelling is storytelling. And if it's strong storytelling and it has all the elements, ultimately, you know, it's going to touch people and reach people. So I want to think of Fred Seidberg um, as a living legend who has created yes. some of the most indelible content, whether TV, whether you say TV or whether you say film, whether you say animation or whether you say live action, but some of the most indelible content of generations. He's, his, his reach has spanned over three generations, start touching into the fourth generation. Almost, yeah, yeah. Started, and this is going to be a great interview. So you guys are going to love, absolutely love the interview with Fred Cyber because like you said, it, it really touches on the growth and the evolution. And, you know, I've talked a little bit before about these sort of once in a generation shifts that the industry goes through. And we're going to get to this uh, very interesting variety article in, in a minute about the streaming wars, which is sort of this generation's sort of monumental shift in how entertainment is consumed. But when Fred first started out after his radio days, that first big shift was the advent of cable television and this plethora of channels that were so niche and specific, not only to a specific audience, but a format, whether it was music or comedy or animation 
And, and he touched upon all of that. So it's going to be fantastic run for, for those who are, are about to listen to this interview in a few minutes. Yeah. And I'm just going to give you some cliff notes. Yeah. He's responsible for creating the MTV logo. Then went on to take over Hanna-Barbera and turn that company around. He took it over directly from Hanna and Barbera. Then went on to uh, co-found or found his, 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 his next company that, you know, they put out some of the biggest hits uh, that you can think of to this day yeah. in the animated yeah. realm. That's everything mm-hmm. from Fairly Odd Parents to Adventure Time. I mean, the list goes on and on. And now Castlevania, which is on Netflix right now. So even touching into, and Castlevania is an anime. So even touching in, into now, I mean, this guy's, you know, he's as timeless and as iconic and as uh, a, a much a living legend as yeah. in, anyone today. So Absolutely. Just, yeah, totally legendary, but just a really cool guy all around as well. And, and so yeah, and, and, and a, a yeah. super cool guy. We have to have a, <laughs> a follow up with him, a second part, or maybe yes. even a third one to encapsulate, you know, all, all of what he's done. So agreed. Uh, But yeah, that's going to be coming up in a few minutes and and we can't wait. But again, we kind of alluded to it, but I really want to get into this uh, couple of stories before we jump over to Fred. Uh, We we mentioned the the big variety article from Star Wars to Avatar. It's called The Last Airbender, How Big IP is Driving the Streaming Wars. Something we touch upon a lot, right, Kevin? Yeah, that's right. And we've been talking about that from the very first episode. Intellectual property is the name of the game. And, you know, we talked about Disney. Disney was started by a a mouse, a drawing of a mouse. And look at what you have, the big house from that first mouse, Mickey Mouse. You said Star Wars that they bought from George Lucas for uh, $4 billion, basically. And now Mm -hmm. I don't know how many billions they've made off of that, but certainly they've exploited that IP and, you know, just expanded that universe in in such a way and ever expanding that universe um avatar the last airbender um you know which started out as a uh um fox property no yeah it's a fox property but even before it was a fox property you know it was like a um graphic novel yeah graphic novel yeah absolutely and, and obviously then marvel and then you know their takeover of fox which added infinite more ip to their arsenal right yeah. which which i believe many are attributing to the rapid rise of the disney plus streamer which yeah. i don't think anyone anticipated obviously the pandemic has helped drive numbers across all the major streamers but disney plus was really just out of the gate so quickly driven by and large by these big IPs, starting with, of course, uh, The Mandalorian, based on the Star Wars franchise. Yeah, and we talked about Disney Plus before it even started, and they expected, and correct me if I'm wrong, 4 million subscribers or, you know, 8 million subscribers. They off, out, of the, out of the gate, they were 10 million subscribers. So yeah. they broke through their numbers even from the start and they have not looked back. Oh yeah. They broke, they broke the internet like they're (laughs) (laughs) right. Or, you know, broke the mobile phone, but there's been fits and starts even with other streamers and they've found their legs too. Warner media, you know, with HBO max had a tenuous start, but you know, they, they really have caught their legs and they're running. Uh, So everyone with these streamers, 
which is, is the industry at the end of the day, with these streamers have really um, found a place mm. and connected. So, yes. you know, you have to give it up with for this once in a generation shift, which has also shifted how we view content, what content is, um, how we even think about content. And, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. we're looking at how new ways have really changed the language of cinema. And, you know, I brought up King Kong versus Godzilla last week. The old ways are still, even in this time, in the middle of this pandemic, still making strides. King Kong versus Godzilla broke records within the dynamics of this pandemic phase. It really did well. In the theaters, the traditional theaters space. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. No, definitely. You know, at least fifty million dollars domestically. They're talking about uh, hundred and twenty million internationally. By far the biggest box office hit since the start of the pandemic. Yeah, and that's with restrictions. You know, because they right. have to have the COVID restrictions in place in the theaters, and that's also considering that it was released day and date on HBO Max. So. Right. You yeah, know, we, that, we talked about that before, about how Warner Brothers uh, has determined that their entire feature slate for 2021 will go day and day with HBO Max. So interesting to see that in spite of that, the big numbers that theatrical is still pulling in with this title. And that's been the talk. How is this model going to change? And that theatrical window has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And it was theorized that when it did shrink to day and date, that was going to be, in, be the end of the theatrical business. But Mm. this is saying something different. So, you know, it's going to shift. Definitely it's going to shift. And that King Kong versus Godzilla, that IP is old, old, old as dirt IP. (laughs) It's like dinosaur IP. From the golden age of Hollywood. Yes, yes. uh, But yeah, monster movies are one of the original IPs. I believe that Hollywood has been able to mine for many generations now. And Godzilla and, of course, King Kong being sort of towards the top of that heap. So I guess putting the two of them together was was a formidable force to get us uh, hopefully out of the last days or months of this pandemic and into, you know, this world now, which is, again, trying to go back to the way things were. I think that now, once again, going to movies and seeing films on a big screen with an audience has regained a little bit of his, not only nostalgia, but of its novelty once yeah. again. Right. Yeah. So uh, just to get out of the house, you know, and do something interesting and, and share a screen with strangers and laugh and cry and go, holy crap, what did the Godzilla just do? You know, that's becoming cool again. And, and just something that people need is that sort of the social experience that's yeah. part of, of, of watching movies and going out. And that's that. That's why I, I think that the theater experience is never going to go away. But there is something and someone that may be going away and someone that <laughs> may be crying right now, Scott Oof. Rudin. Oh, boy. Yes. Yeah. Um, what a you know, scathing story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he uh, cover article, apparently, in The Hollywood Reporter that just says bully. You know, uh, and it really just kind of shines a light, unfortunately, on the uh, the darker crevices of our industry in terms of how, um, you know, obviously we've we've all talked about 
the Me Too movement that was sparked by another sort of legendary Hollywood bully, uh, Harvey Weinstein. Uh, but now kind of shifting gears to Scott Rudin, and none of this is of a sexual nature, you know, to be honest, but uh, his just sort of abusive behavior that's been now documented in this huge Hollywood Reporter cover story uh, that sort of documents his legendary tirades and just sort of uh, manic behavior at the office. And it just really goes into detail just to kind of shine a light again on some of these darker corners of the industry. A very powerful producer, folks that aren't familiar with Scott Rudin, both in Hollywood and on Broadway. He's one of the top Broadway producers. Uh, He just did a huge one before the pandemic. Uh, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, he's won multiple Oscars, you know, he is really uh, one of the A-list producers on both The Great White Way and in Tinseltown. And now, you know, former assistants and colleagues have really just come out of the, the closet, so to speak, <laughs> to, to, to really, you know, tell some really horrific stories about his his professional and office behavior with his support staff. And it's just, it's brutal. Uh, you know, it is a brutal, brutal industry. And we all know going into it, it's long hours, right? It's stressful. It's tiring. Anyone that's worked in any facet of the entertainment industry knows how grueling it can be and how for, particularly for the behind the scenes and the support staff, uh, it's kind of a thankless job a lot of times, yep. you know, yeah. uh, you know, because yes, the major stars and directors and producers, they get some of the limelight. They do all the hard work as well, but you know, there is a big reward for them. Uh, but we know, and, and as you know, I, I worked for a long time uh, in the industry out in LA at a major talent agency. And I know, you know, the countless hours that, that sort of the younger folks and those starting out in, in assistant positions and supporting roles play in, in turning the wheels of Hollywood and how critical that is. And just to kind of see this sort of um, abusive behavior highlighted. Now, I really think shows that Hollywood is trying to change in more ways than one, not just in how we consume content, but how it's created, right? From that point of view. Yeah. So we're talking about this sort of outer shell of the industry, which is what the public feels, the outer shell changing. And it is, you know, once in a, uh, generation change within the outer shell of the industry, but internally the culture of the industry is changing. And mm. in this day and age where information passes so fast, you know, so fast, it's kind of hard for it not to change because a mm. story is always with a lightning bolt. They talk about, you know, a story back in the day being with a bullet or being on a bullet. Well, now every story is on a bullet. It's on a laser. Every yeah. story, and it's laser focused. So, mm. it you know, it's just too tough now to try to get away with a lot of those things of the past. I mean, right. I tell my students two movies to watch immediately when they first start, which is Swimming with Sharks with Kevin Spacey, who, <laughs> you know, is caught up in his own scandal. And right. um, a, a movie recently that came out uh, two years ago, The Accountant. Um, I can't remember the young actress's name. She's brilliant. She's wonderful. Um, but, uh, and, and she's from uh, Ozark, one of my right. favorite shows. But um, she plays an assistant at a, a big agency in New York. And, you know, you really do get um, a little bit of an insider's look. You know, you can't say that, well, Swimming Sharks was based off of a true story. But um, the accountant, I, I, I mean, the uh, 
The Cincinnati Even though we we we, we know Swimming with Sharks was based on at least a couple producers. Um, yeah, we're not going to say name any. We're not going to name names. names. But <laughs> yeah, no, we can. But look, a lot of people do say that that uh, that does is kind of like a fictionalized version, uh, a hybrid of of a Weinstein and Rudin type personality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, which again, for many years was seen as sort of a natural part of the industry. This is kind of like how you pay your dues. This is kind of how you right. come up in the the business. Um, but, you know, and again, I've, I've worked with some really amazing people, very intense, very energetic. Sometimes, you know, you have to blow off steam, right? And, but yeah. there's definitely lines that I think should not be crossed and don't need to be crossed yeah. to, to create great work. And yeah. I think it's obvious by what was documented in this story that there are certain producers that have continued to cross the line because, again, the 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 ends justified the means. I think was well, was a lot of same. pressure, millions of dollars on the line. Right. You know, you have to hit time deadlines. Right. You have to hit deadlines. Period. There's a lot of deadlines to hit, so it's a lot of pressure. Sure. But certainly, yeah. uh, especially now, a lot of that is changing. The culture of the industry is is changing, and so you know we're going to see how it all plays out uh, over time. But now the timing is right for us to get to our amazing interview. Yes. Living legend. Must say one of the nice, one of the good guys in our industry. And we were so happy to have Fred on the show. Yes. So here you go. Well, you know, being a producer for 50 years, I get used to backup. Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm all, I'm always down for backup. So yeah. Oh, yes. You oh yeah. All right. So yeah, I say, I say we crank it up because yeah. you know, Fred, Fred has so many amazing stories and just such a long history in the industry, particularly in the, the television landscape that, you know, he, he really just has crossed some, we were just talking a little bit just before you came on, Kevin, uh, you know, sort of about the evolution of the industry and, and the different trends, obviously we'll get into the streaming wars later on. Uh, but Fred, you know, if you don't mind for our audience here at screen heat, Miami, just mind taking a step back. And once again, just kind of telling us a little bit about where you're from originally and how you first sort of got your, your entree into, into show business. Sure. Um, I grew up on Long Island outside of New York. Um, I'm a first generation American. My mother was a political refugee from Bulgaria in Eastern Europe uh, after World War II. My dad's a fifth generation American who grew up in a farm town in upstate New York. Um, and they both became pharmacists, met in pharmacy school, opened a little mom and pop out on Long Island. And that's where my sisters and I were raised. Um, I thought that I would too be in the sciences because everyone else in my extended family is. Um, I, you know, I blew something up when I was six years old with my chemistry set and said, okay, this is great. I'm going to be a chemist. And I spent all of my schooling being a science math kid. But on the side, I started taking accordion lessons when I was seven years old and I became a music kid. So all the way through school, I figured, okay, I'm going to be a scientist. Uh, I went to college for chemistry, but I neglected one big step in my evolution, which was when I was 12 years old, the Beatles came to America And my life and everyone else's was never the same. Like I started a rock band, you know, in my day after the Beatles, as many people had guitars and rock bands as people now have Snapchat and Instagram accounts. Wow. 
And I loved it. It was like one of my favorite things that I'd ever done in my life. And about six weeks into college, I looked at my lab mate. I said, you know, I like the Beatles more than this. And I left. I walked up to my college radio station, knocked on the door, and I kind of never left. Frankly, um, you know, I still haven't graduated from college because I spent so much time in the college radio station. I started a little record company making jazz and blues records there. I recorded dozens and dozens of jazz musicians because in those days, New York was the epicenter of jazz innovation. Um, actually, all eras of jazz lived in New York simultaneously, and I got a chance to deal with you know so many of them. Um, and so I left college. I started freelancing as a producer, never made too much money. I wanted to make Beatles records, but I didn't know like my way into that part of the business. So I made jazz records, which meant I never made more than $2,500 a year until I got a job at a, of all things, a country music radio station, which if, if you're raised in New York city, you know, you don't listen to country music and I sure didn't, but it was my chance to get, you know, a job. I got a mentor who ended up being my, you know, my lifetime mentor in the media business. And uh, one day uh, I got a phone call from an, another, an ex radio guy, as it turned out. And he said, Oh, I, I hear you might want to work for me in cable TV, which I barely knew what cable TV was, but it turned out that my mentor had recommended me for the gig. I said, no, you know, I, um, I don't watch you know, I don't make TV. I watch TV. And he said, well, you know, come and meet me. Now, to just put it in perspective, he was 25 years old. I was 27 years old. It's not like we were deeply experienced kind of at anything. And I sure I had made like maybe a handful of television commercials, but I truly was in my head a music and audio guy. But I went and met him. And I realized that this guy was smarter than the people I worked for in radio. And one of the things my mentor had taught me is always go to work for the smartest guy. Mm. So I quit my job in radio right away, went to work for this guy in cable TV, who, by the way, went on afterwards to uh, be the president of AOL when AOL was a thing. And then he's now CEO of iHeartRadio. So I was right. He was way smarter, you know, than than most and good at what he did. And that's kind of how I got into the television business, you know, in a quick sweep. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And that that is a quick sweep. And, you know, uh, and the fact that you came from this jazz background in New York uh, and this sort of music uh, and now you're getting into the television space. But then somehow the TV space puts you back into the music space. Right. Yeah. So a month into my job, I worked for something called the movie channel, which is still around. It's, you know, part of Showtime, 24 hours of feature films a day. And about a month into my gig, a memo lands on my desk. I already knew that that company said they were going to start like a dozen channels, which at the time seemed like, you know, there were only three networks in those days. So the idea that this one company would start 10, 12 channels was amazing. 
And the plan was they were going to, they already had a kid's channel. They had Nickelodeon and they were going to start the sports channel, the shopping channel that, you know, like the, anything you get, the games channel, anything you could put in the middle between the and channel they were starting. <laughs> so the memo comes up and they said, we're going to launch the music channel. I thought that was interesting. It was a, you know, a page and a half memo. It laid out what was going to happen. So I marched right into my boss's office. I said, what's this about? He said, oh, yeah, we're going to do this. Um, it'll launch next year. I'll be really busy with it. So I'm bringing in a new guy to run the movie channel and you can work for him. I'm like, whoa, well, wait a minute. I just quit my job to work for you. Like, huh? He said, well, you know, that's how it goes. I said, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I know more about music than anybody on this floor, including you. You walked in in the morning with Variety. I walked in with Musician Magazine. You got to put me on this gig. He said, absolutely. You're right. You're hired. I said, wow. good. I'll find somebody to replace me at the movie channel. He goes, oh, no, no. You can do both jobs. <laughs> so now I'm making $27,000 a year taking two jobs where I don't know what's going on. But wow. that's how I got in. You know, it eventually became called MTV, as we know. And it was an incredible experience because the other conversation I had with my boss that day was about the fact that he'd been really annoying at the movie channel with anything that I did. Because when I did it, he goes, well, you know, CBS doesn't do it that way or HBO doesn't do it that way. And I'm like, yeah, but we're not CBS or HBO. We got to do it our way. No, no, no. We got to do you know what they do. So that day I said to him, so this music channel thing is going to be 24 hours a day of three minute music videos. It's going to be radio on TV. He goes, yeah. I said, okay, so look, I don't care if you don't like the work I do. You can turn down anything I propose as long as you never tell me that it's not what anyone else does. He goes, what, what do you mean? I said, well, nobody else is doing this, right? We're the only ones in the world. So we should do the things that we need to do, not what anyone else does. And he agreed. And by the way, stayed to his word for the entire time I was there. And it gave us an opportunity from our perspective to start reinventing what was television. And that was, other than, other than the fact that it was music, the opportunity we had at MTV was to rewrite as many rules as we could. And luckily, wow. again, I was at the center of that, and I was able to do that with my team constantly over and over again. Now, now it's interesting that you mentioned that because, <clears throat> and just understanding the philosophy, and then again, just going back to the history of MTV, that first music video, right? Video killed the radio star. You bet. Was that because of the philosophy, or was that just like, because, you know, it seemed like the perfect music video to launch the network. We were all so incredibly arrogant, the way that only young people at a startup could be, because even though this was owned by two giant corporations, it was funded the way we think of startups these days. You know, we, you know, the person who had my job at a local television station in New York was making twice as much money as me. You know, we were a startup on every level. And the result was that the people who made a choice to go and work at this company, they weren't part of the mainstream. They weren't part of any kind of establishment. We walked in the door thinking that our job was to like reinvent the future. 
And so on every level, we had that arrogance. So by the time we launched and we had video killed the radio star, we like, we were like, yeah, we're taking over the capital of the US, right? Like <laughs> we, we, we were the insurrectionists in television in like many ways. Wow. Yeah. And what's what's really interesting is people always feel that the future is happening when they're in it, but it's not as easy to look back and see how revolutionary things were in those particular moments. And, you know, now it's all about the tech and who's going to get the big tech startup. And, you know, and this is similar. It's the same thing, really. Completely. We were a tech startup in those days. Um, I think I I think I, you know, got some, you know, accolade in a magazine of being, you know, in the top 10 of like the new media, you know, cable was, cons- I mean, look, remember in 1981, when MTV went on the air, the average home in America across the country had two channels of television, not two networks, two channels. Remember it was over the air. It was the only way, you know, they came in through phone lines and antennas on your house. So the idea that we were going to alone launch a few channels, that our goal was 10 channels, that they said, oh, soon people are going to have 100 channels in their house. That was like mind boggling. And in fact, was at the center of every creative decision we made. Now, could we foresee where we are now, where YouTube alone has 31 million channels? Mm. No way. But at the time, going from two to 100 gave us mental space to say, okay, things need to be different in this new environment, this new world. Yeah, so it was a plethora of riches. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> so Go ahead, this Kevin. Is, this is interesting. So MTV is just starting. You're feeling this energy of something new becoming like the new, the oh, you next bet. thing, the next thing. So then what, what, what was the step after MTV? Did you expect it to really be a big splash the way it was or did it oh, well, take I, you guys I, off guard? At the beginning, I was probably the most skeptical of everybody because everybody else was like certain that it was going to blow up. I was confused by this whole music video thing you know, until I saw one video and I was like, oh, the dime dropped, you know, like one great video made you realize that this was going to be it. So by the time we launched, remember, at that point, CNN had already launched and already had shot off one cannon in the revolution. Right. Because the the conventional wisdom at the time is what do we need more than a half hour of news for? We get a half hour every day that tells us everything we need to know. And so, and they were also like sort of in the short form business. The idea wasn't these long, you know, documentaries about the news, you know, it was every three minutes they were updating the news that went on. And so already the revolution has kind of, had kind of started and we knew we were part of it. But again, we were so arrogant that we believe that we invented all that stuff, not CNN, even though they went on the air six months before us. And again, from my perspective, every creative decision that my group made from the MTV logo 
to, you know, the man on the moon planting the MTV flag, screw the, you know, the country, like this is ours. Every creative decision we made was from the perspective that we were changing the world on some level or other. Whether we change the world or not, I think is open to great debate 40 years later, but we definitely changed a lot. Yeah, but you know what? It changed the film industry. I teach this to my students. Before MTV, movies had a certain amount of sequences, but with the introduction of the music video and storytelling, having more cuts per in in a music video per second, but in, you bet it, it it pushed movies to have more in the cinematic language, more cuts, more sequences, more um, completely. The the visual language changed. So MTV well, you know, we we were yeah, we were already on the move there. You know, one of the big influences in music videos and in my group in particular was what Richard Lester did with A Hard Day's Night on uh, in the Beatles in 1964 or five, whatever year it was. And then how the monkeys copied them for weekly television. We were all um, human sponges of that information, as were all the music video directors. So we all came together in a hundred from a hundred different directions. Remember, we had nothing to do with the way the music videos were made. They were all made decision-wise by the artist in the in the video, by the artist who directed the video, and the record company creative teams, they were done in hundreds, thousands of different ways, filtered into our system. My group, you know, which did, again, the animated logos for MTV, you know, the the logo itself, how we promoted, you know, we had no shows to promote. The biggest decision that my group need to make is we're the promotion department The way television does promotion is watch on Thursday for a very special episode of the Cosby's. You know, we didn't have no special episodes. Like, what do we do? What do we fill our time with? And what stories do we tell to our audience? All of those things were put together into this stew and we boiled it up like until it overflowed. Yeah. So, the MTV logo with the man on the moon that changed all the time. Your group was responsible for that. Yeah. So um, quickly, uh, I love meeting new creative people. Like my whole life is based on meeting new creative people, but I also don't let like to let go of the creative people I already know. So when I was four years old, my parents moved into a new neighborhood And I walked into my backyard and standing on a big dirt hill was a five-year-old. And we became quick friends. He lived right behind me. And he was the son of two artists himself and an animator. And at five years old, he was already exhibiting his talent. And all the way through my life, he was the most amazing artist that I had met. Hmm. Not only that, he was a year older than me. So he's the guy who introduced me to all the bands that I didn't know. You know, he's a music freak to this day. He's 70 years old now. And 
he continues to introduce me to people. But in those days, you know, I didn't know who the who was until Frank told me. I didn't know who the mothers of invention were until Frank told me. So I helped him get his first job out of college. We stayed in touch. I had a little record company. He did some covers for me. And when the job was thrown into my lap that I had to come up with the logo for MTV, he was the second person I thought of. The first person was a famous designer, Milton Glaser, the guy who did I Love New York. But I was too nervous to call him. One, he was a big guy. And two, I thought he'd be really expensive. And we were a startup. We had no money. Actually, third, I wanted to get a little bit of credit. And I knew if Milton did it, he'd get all the credit. So I called Frank. And Frank had started a little design company uh, with two friends behind a Tai Chi studio. They were they actually set up their studio in a storeroom. And I called them up. We had uh, my partner, my creative partner and I, Alan Goodman, a, a college radio friend of mine who'd gone to work at Sony Music, what's now Sony Music. I grabbed him over to work with me at MTV. We went to a coffee shop. We told this group, it was called Manhattan Design, that uh, we needed a logo for this rock and roll channel we were starting. And we were all so excited. They agreed, left the meeting, and we didn't talk about how much they were going to get paid for about a year. They're still angry at me for what I did pay them because it was a pittance. And they started designing logos, which they designed and we rejected for a year. Until like eight or 10 weeks before we went on the air, when the very last thing they presented was what is now the MTV logo. Wow. And I was still in very traditional mode as everybody was. And I said, okay, well, what are the colors going to be? Because, you know, most logos, they're designed by print people and they're designed to be the same as it ever was. You know, the logo never changes. The ABC television logo is a black circle with the letters ABC in it. The Crest toothpaste logo is however many letters Crest is, five, with the same colors on the box for the last, you know, I don't know, 50, 80, 100 years. I don't know how long Crest has been around. So I said, design the colors. Well, they came up with a set of colors, but at the same time, Frank, who was a brilliant illustrator, drew up 10 or 12 different logos for the different shows, the one for the punk show, one for the new wave show, one for the, you know, R&B show, like whatever it was that he came up with. And he sent those in at the same time. And I said, you know, Frank, uh, we have no shows. So what's the colors? So they sent another dozen different color versions up. And I couldn't decide. I'm really bad at thinking about color. Like I wear a white button down shirt to work every day, have for 40 years. So I put them all up on my wall going, okay, I'll decide when I have to. And the day that I had to was the day we needed to commission the first animated logos that, you know, went on. And here I am staring at all of these, all different versions that Frank had illustrated. He had one that looked like a New York taxi cab. 
He he had one that had whiskers growing out of it because they hadn't been shaved yet. He had one with, you know, colored dots all over it, plus the various color palettes. And I thought to myself, well, you know, we're a TV channel where things are always changing. In music, it's always going to be different music. Today, it's, you know, pop. Tomorrow, it's soul. You know, next day, you know, God knows what it's going to be. Why don't we just use all the logos all the time? So our head of marketing looks at me and said, but logos need to be consistent. And I said to this guy who eventually, by the way, became the CEO of the company. I said, well, you know, our consistency is our inconsistency. Just the same way that music is. It's always changing. We're always going to be changing. And, you know, if you look at the first two pieces we did, one is the man on the moon. The other is just a logo up on a little pedestal in stop motion. All of those logos that are in those two pieces were came from the ones that Frank designed. You know, they, they literally like we had no time. We were, I think we had like, you know, four or six weeks left to animate wow. all this stuff to go on the air. And they just took what Frank had done and like, okay, we'll use that. And that's that. That's incredible. So right from the beginning, like I said, the notion that we weren't going to be like anyone else played itself out in all of our creative work. Hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. It it makes so much sense looking back now, you know, over these, it's going to be an anniversary year, right? 40 years in August. This is the 40th anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a a, definitely a special time to have this conversation. Actually at the time. So one of the jobs in my group was the vocabulary that we used, you know, like everybody called music videos, something different. And my boss said, it can only be called music video or video music. It can't be called a clip. It can't be called a promo. Like, okay, fine. So when our first birthday came up, I said, you know, we can't be anniversary. That's for old people. (laughs) Kids celebrate birthdays. Old people celebrate anniversaries. And so we always called it our birthdays. So it's going to be the 40th birthday coming up. And of course, they're now old. There you, <laughs> there you <have> go. <laughs> and yeah, it's in fact, fast hitting middle age. <laughs> as soon as I hang up, I'm writing an email to the guy who runs MTV to tell him that it's got to be called the birthday. Because I'm <laughs> not sure that idea. he knows. Right. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Oh, that's a screen heat exclusive. The birthday. Oh, yeah, that's right. We always we always try to get that exclusive. That's right. Well, we have yeah. one. We got one. Absolutely. Right. Now we have two. But uh, but yeah, and it's funny because you said the consistency is the inconsistency and in how the, the brand itself just continued to evolve. And and there was, you know, speaking of the 40th anniversary, there's this funny meme going around the interview saying, MTV's turning 40, here's to 14 years of great music. Uh, <laughs> probably true probably true but you know they they had to change you know one of there's a concept that has you know become very popular in this age of technology that some philosopher had come up with many years ago called creative destruction mtv really believed in creative destruction you know to just give it as a um, as a metaphor The magazine Rolling Stone decided that it wasn't 
going to just constantly be contemporary. It was going to follow its core audience who were baby boomers, you know, and like whatever they were into, Rolling Stone was going to be into. Now, there was a business reason that they thought that because actually the older people got, the more money they spent and therefore the richer their advertisers were going to be. So from their perspective, for many years, it was a good strategy. At MTV, we decided that we were going to stick with our core demographic of what was first laid out as 12 to 34, which meant that just like teenagers and young adults, we would have to throw everything out that we believed in for the new crop of young people that were coming in. So MTV has, like, at its core, always reinvented itself. I mean, you know, they're the ones who invented, heaven forbid, reality television as we know it. Well, that came because they realized they needed to make programs. The reason they need to make programs is that MTV had to tune out every three minutes, which meant that the time spent viewing which is a key factor in the price of your advertising. How many people has seen your ad? The longer they stay on the channel, the more ads they see, the more you can charge for those ads. Every hmm. three minutes, giving them a tune out is not really a great strategy for holding on to viewers, but having half hour shows is a much better strategy. So at one point, for whatever set of reasons, the creative team there, I was long gone at this point. I was a consultant. They decided they wanted to do a soap opera. And so people started pitching them soap operas the way we know them from television. And one day, one of them said, you know, this is not an MTV soap opera. We need an MTV soap opera. What is that? And that's where you ended up getting the real world, which sort of, you know, lit the fire on that revolution in television. Absolutely. Oh, and what, wow. what an amazing first season. Because I remember that first uh, when I was younger, I guess, within the MTV demographic, that first yeah. season of, of the real world. And, and, you know, as Screen Heat, we always try to find the local connection. And one of the original cast members, who unfortunately the one that passed away of, of AIDS, uh, Pedro Zamora, was graduate of Hialeah High School here in Miami. That was a, is, and, and that was a stunning sequence of television. It was actually the second season yeah. of The Real World. Yeah. Oh, there's, yeah, it, you're right. It, it, it was stunning. I remember watching the TV and starting to cry. Mm. Unbelievable. Very powerful. Yeah. Season. Yeah. yeah. The first, the and first nobody cried, by the way, and no one cried at anything on MTV until mm. that moment. Oh, yeah. And, and that was groundbreaking for that specific time period, because yeah. a lot of people were not talking about uh, HIV and AIDS at, at exactly. that point. And that kind of you know broke a lot of barriers. It, it, it really did. It introduced a lot of people to the humans behind the news, you know, which mm. is always a critical element to getting people on your side. And, you know, certainly... Uh, the gay community had been ostracized during those early years of HIV and AIDS. And we had all become friends with Pedro. You oh, know, wow. like yeah. that was brutal. Yeah. And by the way, you know, I, I haven't watched it yet, but on Paramount Plus, they just launched 
a show of bringing back the original cast from the first season. That's what I was going to bring up. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Much, one of the big clashes was a racial clash, you know, which is sadly as pertinent in 2021 as it was, what is what, 1988? Maybe that that show came on somewhere in there, mm. uh, and they've revisited that racial clash between the two people who had it. You know, in this in this reboot that they've got. So you know, all interesting stuff, and all came from that core feeling we had at MTV that we had to reinvent ourselves. Well, you know, in an animation, we had to reinvent ourselves dozens of times in 10 seconds. That sort of set the stage for what MTV did, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But this is what I really loved because I did hear the interview with you before your evolution. And, mm -hmm. you know, what, what, what keeps buzzing in my mind is jazz. So I, mm -hmm. I keep hearing this John Coltrane tune as I'm talking to you. <laughs> that's that's one of his drummers right behind my head, Rashid Ali. Oh, maybe that's why. <laughs> Subliminal messaging. There you go. But that that improvisational uh, movement in your career, I think. Completely. Uh, you know, the industry is that too. If if you're not improvisational, then you're going to get left behind. But that evolution of your career we always talk about the journey and the evolution here at screen heat miami we're, we're most interested in the stories how did you make that turn into animation which is one of my favorite sectors of the industry which well look to, to go backwards i had no interest in jazz whatsoever i was a rock and pop kid all the way through my early life you know my teen years and I got to my college radio station, which was in New York City, who had no time for contemporary pop music. None. We were in New York City. We had 78 radio stations in that town. And the mission of our college station had been, well, we can't do what, you know, the big AM and FM stations do. We got to do what we think is right. And it was, you know, an educational institution. We thought that one of our jobs was to educate people on some subliminal level. And in addition to the classical and folk music, which had been mainstays of their music programming and international programming, there was a budding jazz culture going on. And at the time, jazz was going through its own revolution. You know, they some people call it avant-garde jazz. Some people called it the new thing. You know, John Coltrane went from playing the most traditional ballads you can imagine to when he was with Rashid Ali being one of the great screamers of that music. And I got caught along with the tide. Like, I wanted to be at this radio station. I wanted to do the things they wanted to do. So I started listening to jazz, not understanding one little bit of it. In fact, I engineered an avant-garde jazz show for six months before I could like actually turn the volume up so I could listen to it because it just sounded like noise to me. One thing led to another. I started making jazz records. And another you know, thing that I had to do was make a living. So an indie record company started commissioning me to oversee their recordings. And to make a very long story short, I got taken to the woodshed one day 
by a very famous engineer who told me that my only job wasn't to figure out what songs they played or how long they were or whether it fit on the record or not. My only job was to get the right leader in the room to lead the creative flow of what went on. Because if I got the right leader, he would know how to pick the material or write it himself. He would know how to pick his side men and he would know like what tempo to set for the song. Like I didn't need to be part of that, which was all right with me. I was a young white kid from the suburbs who barely knew jazz. I had already felt like I liked it. The musicians were all older black Americans who had forgotten more than I would ever know. And I didn't have a cultural connection with them that I could figure out anyway. I say this only in the kindest way. I'm the straightest human being ever. I've never had a drink or taken drugs. And here I was in a drinking and drug culture, Mm. not only an African-American culture. So I was a fish out of water. But, you know, what I realized at that moment is I could find the right person to put in the room. And for my entire career since then, it hasn't been about what I'm into. It's about what other people are into. I can get as excited. I'm a fan, like I said, about my Beatledom. You know, I'm a fan of creative people. So fast forward, my little M animations, I did the same thing at Nickelodeon, put me in a position that somebody thought I could run a cartoon studio when I was 40 years old. And I had the same conversation with him I did with Bob Pittman when he tried to hire me at um, what became MTV Networks. When he called me and said, hey, you want to come and run the Hanna-Barbera Studios? Which, you know, to me was like, they were the most famous cartoon studio of my youth. I was like, "Uh, I'd love to, but you know, I've never made a cartoon. Uh, you know, I've never looked at a storyboard for a cartoon or a script. And he said to me, you know, it couldn't get any worse. And what do you mean? Because they haven't had a hit since the Smurfs in 1981. This is in the early 90s. Wow. So if you don't have a hit, nobody's going to blame you. This is the president of Ted Turner's company telling me this. He goes, they had just bought Hanna-Barbera. And he said, and if you do have a hit, people think you're brilliant. So at the time, I was sick of my partner who had gone and eloped with my sister. So I knew I had to see him every Christmas anyway. I was sick of my clients, even though I had hired a lot of my clients at MTV and Nickelodeon. You know, they were really it had really gotten boring just doing what they wanted me to do because I don't do the things that people want me to do. I try and do the things that they should be doing. And Connie, I was you know, I was getting divorced myself. So the idea of like hightailing it from New York to Los Angeles, where I barely knew anybody in a business where I knew nothing, that sounded like just right at that moment. And in fact, I then looked at my watch. It was 1035 in the morning in New York City. And on my watch at 12 o'clock was Fred Flintstone. At three o'clock was Scooby-Doo. At six o'clock was Huckleberry Hound. And at nine o'clock was Yogi Bear. I kid you not. That's what I was looking at when I went, sure, I'll move out and become president of Hanna-Barbera. And I went out and I walked in first day. I was the president of the company. 
It was like the wildest, weirdest thing in the world. Wow. But I could go to the staff, which I did that first day, and have a meeting. And I said, look, folks, there's good news and bad news here. The bad news is I don't know anything about cartoons. I stopped watching them when I was 12. The good news is you know a lot about cartoons. That's what you do for a living. So instead of me telling you what to do, why don't you tell me what to do? And in many ways, though, I sort of set a template for what I thought they should be doing. They were the ones who told me how to fulfill that template. I put the right person in the room. Just like going back to my, you know, my jazz instruction. Wow. And that's worked out really well for me. Like throughout yeah. <laughs> throughout an animation career, television career, like whatever, through my music career. You know, yeah. that's what my gig was. Finding the and right it's, person. It's funny because that you could say that about a quality executive like yourself, but also about a producer in the film business. Is really the best producers just know how to put the right people in the room. Hopefully, you know, hopefully. you know, hopefully, <laughs> you know, one of the things that's really true about producers and it's true about record producers, television producers, movie producers. If you go through IMDb and you pull out every person that has the title producer, we all do completely different jobs. Mm. We do versions of each other's jobs, but unlike directors or cinematographers or gaffers you know we actually don't have skills in the traditional sense where we've gone to school and learned how to do a bunch of things we've had to put together our own stew of what it is that we do like the thing i i can't do any of the things that the producers who work for me can do right i i don't know how to put together a crew on cartoons I don't know how to put together a schedule or a budget. And honestly, I'm undisciplined enough. I wouldn't know how to follow the schedule or budget of my life depending <laughs> on. <laughs> the Absolutely. only thing I do is create a structure that hopefully gets that right person in that room. And then like okay. everyone else in our business, I pray. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, That's incredible. So, when you become the head of Hanna-Barbera, which now, I mean, you, you kind of look and see a whole network that was made up of a lot of those cartoons in the original incarnation of the Cartoon Network. Mm -hmm. um, and then the evolution of the Cartoon Network into the second half, which is Adult Swim. Yep. Um, and, and which is now moved again into HBO Max. Right. Yeah, that's right. And they have that partnership. Everything is under the umbrella of Warner Media, which yep. is an exactly. umbrella of AT&T of all. I mean, no one would have thought that Crazy world, even right? a few years ago. So um, can you talk about a, a, a little bit about the evolution of Hanna-Barbera from the time you came in and sure. what was happening with uh, with cartoons or animation? So, so the thing to remember is that Hannah and Barbera, the founders had already been two of the most successful creators of cartoons in history. They did Tom and Jerry. They won the first Oscar for a cartoon. 
They were 48 years old when they started the studio because all of the movie studios had said, well, we can't make cartoons anymore. It's like it doesn't work for our business. And at 48 years old, Joe and Bill had been successful, but still worked for a salary. And all of their friends who had literally invented the cartoon business were out on the street trying to figure out how they're going to make a living. So Joe and Bill start the studio and they staff it with people who were the pioneers of the cartoon industry. And Joe and Bill operated from the perspective of, we know what we're doing. Just do what we tell you. And for, even though they sold the company a few years later, they started it in like 1956 or 57, sold it by 1966. They ran it for the next 20 years themselves. And they were used to being the dictators. And they set up the place like, please do what you tell us, we tell you. And because we're, you're gonna do what we tell you, we get Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, Quick Draw McGraw, the Flintstones, the Jetsons, Space Ghost, Coast, you know, Space Ghost, um, uh, the Smurfs, right? Whatever it was that Joe and Bill did, they knew something that other people didn't know. And they quickly became the biggest cartoon studio in Hollywood in the world at that point. But, you know, the world started to change. And by the end of the 80s, while they were still a very dominant force, creatively, they were gone. You know, Joe and Bill at that point are 80 years old. Mm. Literally that day I walk into the building, I have 80 year old people working for me. There was a woman, there was a woman in our coloring department who started working with Bill Hanna when she was, you know, in her thirties and her twenties at MGM doing Tom and Jerry. Now there was nothing wrong with these people. They were all fabulous, great people. But in that studio, the young people were considered to be 40 years old, you know, and one of the things we all know about creative destruction is it tends to happen when you're like 15, 20, 25, you know, 30 years old. And those people were sort of shoved off into a corner at that studio and be, and they were told, do what we tell you to do. So given that I knew nothing about cartoons, I was able to come in and go, okay, well, where are all the earrings and where are all the tattoos? Already I'm 40. I know I know nothing about cartoons. I learned very quickly that one of the differences in cartoons than a bunch of the other businesses I'd been in is there was a lot of craft that was necessary to put together a half hour cartoon where you could have up to 20,000 drawings, right? So it wasn't like all of that knowledge and wisdom was to waste. It was just like, what was the input? What was the first idea that all of this craft would put be put to work on? And given two big things, one is they had come to the conclusion as had the rest of the animation business that the most important person, just like in movie making, is the writer, that the lousiest offices in the joint were the animators and artists. 
And I was like, kind of just, you know, philosophically confused because if I looked at IMDb and I looked at a live action show and an animated show, the only positions that were different were the artists. Yet they were the least important people in the building. So I started going out with a few people, young people who had opinions about the industry. And one of them laid a like, really important thing on me at an independent studio. And when you walked in the studio, there was a sign. And it said, if you can't draw, you can't write. And this guy had a philosophy that said making a visual film like an animated film is. You can't just write the gag. And the example he used is, you know, in a classic gag in a Bugs Bunny cartoon is, and the bomb gets thrown into Bugs Bunny's hand and it blows up. And maybe, you know, Bugs turns into a bunch of ash and he slowly, you know, falls toward the ground. He said, you know, bombs aren't funny. So when a animation writer writes on a script and he throws the bomb to whoever, you know, Huckleberry Hound, he said, that's not funny. The only person who can figure out how it's funny is the animator and the artist. So what's the bomb look like? How does the fuse like get lit? When it's thrown, what does the thrower look like when he throws it? Is he excited? Is he, you know, scowling? Is he laughing? How does the bomb go through the air and get caught? What's the look on the face of the character that catches it? What does the explosion actually look like? And what's the aftermath of that explosion? Does he get blown into pieces and you don't see him? Does she um, just get like, you know, smoke on her face? Like, you know, what kind of bomb is it? He said, that can only be done by the artist. So when I came up with my first program to figure out who should be the next, because the next is always important in a creative world. I said, one, we're going to go back to doing it the way they did it in the 30s, which is they made a short. And if people liked the short, they made another short. If they didn't like it, the character was dead and they started with a new character. So I commissioned 48 short films. I took pitches from anywhere in the world. And the pitches had to be on storyboards, not in a script. Which, by the way, to this day, I have a lot of enmity in the business of people saying I don't like writers. Well, I love writers. I'm a big reader. I've commissioned writers for 50 years in my business. But as I point out to people who tell me that artists can't write, I point out that most writers can't write either. They just can type. <laughs> the fact that you can type a sentence doesn't mean that you typed a good sentence or a good paragraph. And the fact that many artists write their material by drawing the pictures and you know scribbling in dialogue or screen directions underneath doesn't make them any less a writer than the typists. Right. He, 
it's right that most artists can't write well the way that most writers can't write well. <laughs> but by my going after artists who could write their own stuff, I had the field entirely to myself. Literally no one else was talking to these people. Wow. They were all wow. hired after they approved a script. And then they went to the artist and said, can you make the script come alive in animation? I went back to the future the way it had been done, you know, since the twenties, which is I had artists create their own material to this day, 95% of the series I've made have been, have come from artists who created their own stuff and who would other hire other writers to be the writers on their shows. I've had a few shows that were, you know, started as a script, nothing wrong with that. One of our, Great shows recently, Castlevania on um, on Netflix. It started with a video game where you could barely see that there were humans in it. You know, it was like an old Nintendo game. Right. And the first thing we did was commission a script, and we didn't figure out what the art style was going to be for almost 10 years. So wow. things come about in different ways, but what it did for me was it set a template for who should be the right person in the room. Back to our very first topic of conversation. Right. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, it's it goes back to hearkening to the one of the first things I learned in, at the University of Miami Film School, Kevin attended as well, is they asked us, what is the classic definition of a movie? And the answer was a story told in pictures, not in words. And that has stayed with me. And whenever possible, they would always say, show, don't tell. And I think, I think you know, one of the most famous filmmakers of all time, obviously, was Alfred Hitchcock. And I don't think it was um, by accident that he made a whole bunch of silent films before he ever made a, a film with a piece of dialogue. And how he learned to tell stories, you know, in his case, thriller stories, without a piece of dialogue and a title card here and there set his template for the rest of his filmmaking forever. Yeah. And Alfred Hitch, right. one thing, one thing that always struck me was the person that directed the shower scene yep. in Psycho was his storyboard artist. Yep. He revered exactly. his storyboard artists that much. And that's one of the most indelible scenes in movie history. If so. you read um, that great Francois Truffaut interview book of, you know, called Truffaut Hitchcock, you see constantly they review, they basically Truffaut interviewed Hitchcock for every film he made at that point. And the strength of visual storytelling comes through in almost every interview across his film career. And I read it long before I had thought I would ever have anything to do with film, no less animation. Um, but I have reread it several times over the years to just remind me about what you just said, JL, which is, you know, it's stories with pictures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Animation has made such a big comeback. I mean, not, not a big comeback, but I mean, really animation, oh, yeah. when, when, you, when you think about films, it's said that, you do an animated film, that film has a great, great possibility of making it. And the evolution of the animation industry, 
just shows that it's just gotten bigger over time. What do you what do you think about the animation industry now, the evolution from well, then until now? I think now? in the in the even in the pre-pandemic moment, you know, in the pandemic moment, we're the only ones that have been able to work steadily throughout mm. this last year. We didn't miss one deadline until Texas froze over and our Austin, Texas team didn't have electricity for a week. But pandemic-wise, we didn't lose a beat. So you're actually going to see more and more animated shows coming out in the next couple of years just based on the few live-action shows that can be made and the plethora of animated shows. But that being said, the biggest change we've seen over the 30 or so years that I've been doing it is that MTV and MTV Networks brought forward the idea that television cartoons didn't just be need to be for kids. The Flintstones and Jetsons tried to do it in primetime cartoons. Even the Simpsons tried to do it, you know, in the late 80s. But it was Beavis and Butthead and South Park that really opened up the door. Oh, things have changed. And then they kind of froze for the next 25 years until the streamers came out and the streamers need for volume and their need to essentially replace your whole cable dial in one place, one platform has opened up the door for a complete new look at adult animation. And while the amount of kid animation versus the amount of adult animation is still completely out of whack and probably will be forever, there is more adult animation of more different stylistic and filmic approaches than ever before. So, you know, in many ways, you could look at Big Mouth and say, okay, Big Mouth is an extension of Beavis and Butthead and South Park. Castlevania, not so much. You know, and Castlevania has been such a hit that we've sort of broken the back of the three three seasons and you're out, you know, kind of thing that has happened in the streaming universe. And I'm guessing that because Castlevania is actually a universe that is more akin to Marvel than it is to, let's say, DC, just for metaphoric terms, I think you will see different iterations of Castlevania for several generations to come. And you're already seeing it like all sorts of anime, adult anime has sort of popped up, not just in Netflix, but you know, the great success of Crunchyroll has been explosive. International fare of all kinds is spreading around the globe in a completely different way than it ever did. I don't know about you guys, Maybe, uh, JL, you're different because you're bilingual and you have easily transferred between various kinds of languages of filmmaking. I'm not. Mm. I'm like a cranky old guy who, you know, I would look at subtitles when I first started watching art films, you know, in my local neighborhood art house. But, you know, when it came to television, I didn't want no subtitles. Well, anime has blown that up for a whole new generation. And sure enough, this year, I have watched more 
things with subtitles than ever before in my life. And it'll now be a permanent part, not just of mine. I'm old, so that doesn't really count. But for a 20-year-old, a 10-year-old, more international fare is going to become normal for them all the way throughout their lives. And in animation, that also means that we're going to find more different countries bringing animation to us than just in L.A. and Tokyo. You know, which I think is, you know, is going to be the biggest radical change because back to my thesis, different people are going to be in the room deciding what to make. Absolutely. Yeah. And and what you guys know from your personal backgrounds is the more black Americans that were at record companies making decisions change the entire musical profile of everything that went on. The more. Latino Americans that were making decisions in mainstream music companies, that changed everything. Well, by the way, as it ever was. And now we're starting to see the same thing in filmmaking. Now we have a Japanese. I just, I haven't announced it yet, but I've just made a deal with a Chinese animation development company to develop a series of short films with Chinese filmmakers who would like their material to be seen across the world. That's, you know, my mission is to just keep putting more new right people in the room. Of the last, I don't know, 75 shorts that I've made over the last 15 years, I went from having two women making shorts for me to 20. And my most interesting shows that have come out of my last group of shorts all came from women creators. The only place I have failed, I get an F, is with black creators. There are historical reasons for that. It was a racist business, blah, 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 blah. But I have failed. But I'm an old white guy, so that makes it harder for me to change it. Yeah, maybe we can have a conversation uh, at, at some some point. Anytime. But, That's uh, what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think you and Kevin need to sidebar for sure. Anytime. Yeah. I'd, be, I'd be thrilled to do it. Uh, every I mean, time but, I say I want to do a show with all black creators, my team looks at me and they go, you know, we're not black, right? <laughs> it, it, but it, it, it is tough. I mean, when you think about it historically, animation has been, you know, oh, they're the worst. even more animation, expensive, expensive. As bad as the regular film business is, I will not tell the story in public of what I heard the first week I was in the cartoon business. I will not tell oh, the wow. story, but trust me, it was one of the most virulently racist things I had ever heard in my life. And then I understood why there were no black creators in the business or very few. There were there have been a few, but very few. Yeah. Right. The bar, the bar is, um, you know, getting a little bit lower when we talk about filmmaking. You know, people talk about now you have a cell phone and you can shoot with your cell phone. You need software. But the bar has gotten lower for filmmaking itself. Totally. And, totally. and, and you're and you're seeing more diverse stories Compl in that vein. Uh, no, I mean, look, you look at YouTube. I started a thing called the Channel Frederator Network. We have 3,000 animators who are in the Channel Frederator Network from all around the world. 
I didn't know there were 3000 people in the business. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing what's going on. And, you know, again, one of the reasons that I'm just humiliated by my failure on that front is one, I got my start in black music. And two, one of my five favorite movies of all time is car wash. Oh, wow. You know, like, wow. <laughs> yeah. what happened? I, I, I just didn't crack the code. So we'll see if we can do something. We'll uh, talk separately. To kind of Absolutely. Connect on that. Um, but I have to say, this has been a remarkable interview. And, you know, there is a similar thread in all of our interviews. And, you know, the journey has always been breaking down these barriers and thinking of different ways to make visions happen. And this certainly um, extols those sentiments. So well, thank you. I, uh, I appreciate it. Um, as I tell all the young'uns, even if you go to school for filmmaking and stuff, there is no regular path. There is no set path. Everybody gets into creative, commercial filmmaking a different way. And it has made, it's one of the things that makes filmmaking so exciting. And as you say, with the, with the production and distribution bar having almost disappeared cost-wise in terms of getting started, you know, you can start filmmaking or animation making when you're six now, like I did with my chemistry set. There is the equivalent of a chemistry set of filmmaking for anybody who wants to do it at any point in their life. And though I didn't start in, you know, in the visual filmmaking business until I was 27, I didn't start in animation until I was 40. The opportunity for those people who started it when they were young and evolved themselves through it means that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of different paths into this business. And with the advent of the internet and anybody can do anything, God knows what the generations after I'm long gone are going to be, but it's going to be wild. Why? I mean, yeah. we don't know how wild it's going to get. I just wrote a piece about these two young white kids who are on the surface jazz musicians, but look like the biggest pop music freaks that you've ever seen and the way they have absorbed their lifetime they their lifetime is such that they've only been in the age of the internet musically where 50 million tracks were available to them like that and all of those things have been absorbed into the output of their music it's not like <laughs> I mean, when a guy sent me a link to a story about them and said I should write them up, I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Until I read into it, oh, my God, they're what I've been talking about for years, which is the melting pots that we have all – you guys grew up in one of the melting pots. I grew up in one of the melting pots. It ain't nothing compared to the world melting pot that exists culturally right now for every young person that's out there. Mm. Yeah. That's it's going to be crazy. Yeah. yeah. The world's a much smaller place for sure. 
<laughs> I, I have a nine month old, so you know, you know, thinking, you know what? Yeah, yeah what, you're going to be really gonna freaked into? out. <laughs> you're going to be really freaked out when that nine year old is a teenager, and you're like, what? What? Nine month what? old? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Either one. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna. Right. It's gonna be. You know. You better hold on. Yeah. You know, because so, they're going to bring you on a ride that you can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be an, an autonomous car, which exactly. I think in a few, <laughs> a few years we'll be in. Um, so you, you started to touch on this and maybe you already answered this. But at the end of our interviews, um, we established this, I think, in the first interview, actually, um, we asked two questions. And the questions um, are similar, but they have distinct differences. So um, I don't know. Usually JL asks the first one and I ask the second one. So um, JL. Yeah. So the first one and, and you alluded to it before, but the first question is actually a, a back to the future question. So if Fred today could go back and talk to Fred, who was just about to start at his college radio station or even younger, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to yourself back then? I actually give this advice almost on a daily basis to the youngins. When I was young, like a lot of young people, I was sure that I was right 100% of the time. And I fought to the death to be right. Now at 69, I still think I'm right about everything every day. But my history tells me that on my very, very best day, I'm wrong eight out of 10 times. So I would say, you know, hold on to your arrogance. There's nothing wrong with it. But take a beat every once in a while and double check yourself. Not triple check. Don't overcheck. Don't like, you know, lose the thread of what you believe in. But just take a beat before you shove it down somebody's throat. That's kind of what I would tell them. You know, I, I, do, I do actually tell this pretty often. I, I talk to some young person that I've never met before almost every single day. Um, and occasionally this advice comes out, you know, if the right conversation happens. Wow. That's, that's great advice. That's a great one. And that's not one that I've heard in, in our 48, you're our 48th interview. So, well, other <laughs> than that, you know, I think I said it to JL last time. I don't know that I'd actually do much different, you know, like I am the product of all of my fuck ups, you know, mm. like everybody else. And, and you have to really honor those screw ups you know, there is no doubt about it, you know, because they're actually what make you what you are, you know, is figuring out how to solve a problem. One of my best directors, the creator of the Fairly Odd Parents, made four shorts for me before he made the Fairly Odd Parents. And two of them were among the worst shorts I've ever made. And when I asked him how come, because he, he really is one of the great pitchers of the universe, like when he pitches you, you want to believe. So I go, Butch, you know, his name is Butch Hartman. And I go, you know, your pitches were so good. Why did the cartoons turn out so lousy? He said, well, you know, I didn't do the animation timing. You know, in animation, 
how the characters move, when the jokes hit, all that, that's everything in in that kind of filmmaking, even more so than live action, because in live action, the actor decides where they throw their arm, you know, not not the director. And he said, so I didn't really know how to time. I said, oh, OK, so and and he goes, oh, I'm teaching myself how to time. It will never happen again. And sure enough, by his third cartoon, he had improved dramatically. The fourth one almost made the cut. And the Fairly Odd Parents is one of the most successful cartoon series in history. Yeah. 20 years is one of, of being one of the top rated cartoons in the history of Nickelodeon. We just got two new orders for two new series 20 years later. Because wow. Butch never doesn't teach himself the thing that he didn't know. Wow. Well, that's, that's, that's advice within advice. You bet. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) So that's, that's a great dovetail into the second question, which is what advice would you give um, people just getting, getting into the industry? But I, I think this is a twofold thing because you had a rebirth in your career from several times yes several times but you know we spoke of i mean i'm just going to talk because there's two iconic mtv is iconic hannah barbera is iconic yep and and now you know with with your company so what what advice would you give people just getting into the industry and also people who you know maybe want to take a turn so when i first got to hannah barbera i was shocked shocked beyond belief about one thing I had to make a lot of changes. The studio was really like had troubles. And unfortunately, a lot of layoffs happened in that process. You know, we made up for it in spades like later, but that's how it was. So a young guy comes in, he's probably 25 and he just starts screaming at me. You know, you promised you were going to make things better for artists. I need job security How can you be doing this? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, Tony, you're like, you're 25, right? He goes, yeah. I said, well, no offense, Tony, where I come from, all the 25-year-olds I know are trying to get out of having a job. They think of it as a J-O-B, and they got to get out and, like, be their own selves. He stormed out of my office. By the way, he left. He went to Disney. He's still employed at Disney Almost 30 years later, job security was really important to Tony. But the most depressing thing I've seen in the animation business, and it's probably in the film business too, is that when somebody gets a J-O-B, they stop working on their own stuff. So my advice to people is, one, keep reading because writers, you know, novelists, all that, they've been writing stories for way longer than filmmakers have. Two, keep writing, or the equivalent, which is keep making your own stuff. And to your point, Kevin, with the cost of production being knocked down to like almost nothing, you know, with uh, where is my, I don't know where my device is, my phone, I can make a, a film that like shows up in a theater with the thing that I carry in my pocket. Make films no matter what your J-O-B is, no matter how tired you are at the end of the day, at the end of the week. If you stop making your own stuff, 
you will forget why you're doing this business. You might never make your own movie. You know, you might never make your own TV show. But by constantly doing your own creative work, you will be reminded every time you pick up a pencil, a camera, uh, a paintbrush, you'll be reminded why you bothered to begin with. And it means that no matter what your job is throughout your career, you'll come to it like with a fresh excitement as to why you bother to do it. Wow. Wow. That's a great way to end this interview. Jeez. It is. I got goosebumps. That's the sound bite right there for the ad. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> Fred, you're amazing. I appreciate it. Thank you guys. It was a pleasure. Kevin, I hope you, um, you know, connect to me offline and yeah, I'll figure out how to you. solve my big problem. <laughs> <laughs> I may have a couple of solutions for you. I would love that. That'd be okay. great. <laughs> Thank you. Be a part, so a part much, two. Okay. Thanks, Fred. Have a good day. Take we'll care. chat. See okay. you again. Sure. Okay. Bye-bye now. Later. Bye. And another incredible interview. You know, I'm really... Another one, son! <laughs> another one. Um, I'm happy with the mosaic of different sectors of the industry that we've been able to touch upon with Screen Heat Miami as a whole. We're almost to our 50th episode. So, um, you know, this adds to that quiver. And certainly this is, you know, one of those arrows that has the strength of time and the strength and tenacity of a life of indelible work that has touched millions and millions of people. So I, I really loved this interview. Hopefully we have a part two and a part three because we couldn't even, you know, we, we, we got to the tip of the iceberg within his career, but, you know, I want to get into a little bit more of, um, you know, moving up in, in, into current times more about, you know, what he's done in terms of yeah. not only the industry, but the transformation of the industry and popular culture. I mean, you think about that MTV logo, which, mm. you know, is one of the most indelible of all time. Oh, so. yeah. And, and one of the things he mentioned in the interview was the idea of him feeling and wanting to have done more in terms of diversity, in terms of creators. Right. Yeah. And it's funny because now and I've said this, you know, off mic, Kevin, usually around Oscar time, we start talking about you know, as much strides as Hollywood has made or trying to make, there still feels that there's this lack of diversity and that there's so much more room to grow. Yeah, right? because it's 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 a Grand Canyon gap. So even if you close a little bit of it, you know, there's still a lot of expense that needs to be traversed in order hmm. for it it to work. I mean, I talked about some of these numbers on the last episode, but you know, still 93% of agencies are um you know, Caucasian and, and, and mostly male, um, mm. 93 to 97%, they say, and upwards right. of 90% in terms of, you know, management of the industry. So that, you know, the top tiers of the industry, they're around those numbers too. So, you know, there still is change that needs to happen. There is changes that are happening and I'm super happy about that. But uh, an article just came out in Variety about Latinos absence in Hollywood you know, I get a little bit, I, I don't know, because of course I'm not Hispanic, but I do have a half Hispanic daughter. So, you know, I'm a little bit. And, in the you and a full Hispanic co-host. So. And, and, <laughs> there you go. Um, my, and my, you know, my wife is from Nicaragua, but um, so is it Latino? Is it Hispanic? Is it Latinx? You know, you don't know. Um, 
you know? Well, personally, and I'll just give my personal opinion, I'm not a big fan of the Latinx or the Latinx or whatever, only because I believe it's trying to change the language. Uh, and, you know, as we know, many Latin languages, not just Spanish, but I, I believe also Italian and French, you know, the, the, the feminine and the, and the masculine way of addressing even inanimate things uh, is part of the language itself. So I think trying to change that, um, you know, I do know that outside of the U.S. Hispanic culture, and, and that's even a minority here that use that phrase or accept it, in the Spanish-speaking world, Latin America, what we call Ibero-America, between Spain and the Caribbean and Latin America, really don't under even understand what that even is, you know, like, that right. Latin, like it's like, que, que? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know, but what's, what's the pushback? But- um, on on Hispanic, because I can just tell you with with African-American, I have a little bit of trepidation right. because, yeah, you could be of African descent via American America. But what if you're from Jamaica and you just came to America or, you right. know, what if you're I mean, you know, there's so many different iterations that right. although black um, may have felt that it came from a derogatory sense uh, for me, right. the, you know, black and encapsulates the pan-african diaspora the total right. pan-african diaspora so i don't know well, what I, the pushback was against saying hispanic well i i think that and, and this is i got to do more research on it but what i've read uh before and i think is is correct is that hispanic was actually created by the u.s government as oh. a way to identify that group uh as part of the census so okay. you know they wanted to kind of differentiate between i guess white Anglo-Saxon Americans and white Hispanic Americans. But, you know, so uh, I believe it was just a way to kind of count the different groups in this country is where that term originally came from. But again, we have to do more research. So I think to me, the safest one is to just say Latino or Latina. And when you're speaking about the group as a whole, as in this Variety article, which again, this is Variety and they do say Latinos, Absence in Hollywood has felt deliberate is 2021 the year it changes. That's the headline. I think the safest bet um, is to use the Latino Latina reference. Uh, and, and that just kind of really not only uh, addresses the U.S. Hispanic or U.S. Latino Latina population, but the global Latino population. Yeah, so, I mean, I could see that Latinx is also, you know, inclusive of, you know, the gender pronouns right so maybe that that has to the the spanish language just doesn't do the gender neutral thing unfortunately uh when you're speaking in spanish to another spanish person that doesn't click (laughs) in their mind uh and so uh again again the latin x thing was not something that was born of spanish language speech speakers but of the u a certain segment of the u.s uh latino population Okay. Uh, so. that, that tried to neutralize or gender neutralize the language. And it just it hasn't caught on. And, and I, I just, it, it doesn't feel natural to me as a oh. Spanish speaker. Okay. Well, anyway, whatever um, it is, the absence in, in, in Hollywood, is, <laughs> it, it, but it, it, you know, it is true. And it, yeah. it's, 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 it's a diff- difficult thing to, to wrap your arms around. I think those of us, and this is, you know, someone that, you know, doesn't come from that background. Um, those of us within Miami and maybe, you know, places like New York have an understanding that, you know, it's, there's different sectors. You can't just right. look at it as one homogenous group because, right. you know, there's a Cuban experience. 
There's an Ecuadorian experience. There's a Mexican experience. You know, all three of these experiences are intrinsically different. So how do you create content that then right. addresses all of these encapsulates all these cultures? Right. So right. Um, I'll pass this one on to you. Uh, yeah, there. no, and, and it's it, and I appreciate it. Thank you. And I, I know what you're saying. And it's true that the diaspora and, and even the U.S. Latino population is very segmented. Like you said, it's very different to be a Cuban from Miami than a Puerto Rican from New York than a Mexican from L.A., you know, and there are countless other ones. You know, now we have a big influx of Venezuelans, as you know, into the South Florida community as well. And there's but there's also Chileans and Colombians and Argentinians and Dominicans and all sorts of, of Spanish speaking people that come and immigrate to this country and, and want to make a life here and want their stories to be told. So is there a common thread that you can find across all of these uh, groups? Or is it something that you really have to kind of dissect it and say, okay, this is a Puerto Rican story. This is a, you know, uh, a Cuban story. This is a Mexican story, but I believe in its totality, there is certain shared attributes that can be highlighted, uh, including the artists themselves. Right. So I think that it's very natural for a Cuban to celebrate a Puerto Rican, a Puerto Rican winning an Oscar or, you know, a Mexican director, which uh, to be fair, that has been seen like as far as the Oscar race, the one where the Mexican community at least has done amazing. If you think about yeah. You know, some of the great Mexican directors that have won multiple Oscars over the past several years. And a lot too. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, you just kind of go on uh, on down the line with Alfonso Cuaron and all these guys, you know, in The Shape Del of Water, Del yeah. Toro. So, you know, those obviously have made huge imprints in Hollywood. Right. And so I think that I'm not sure if that has to do with the fact that, you know, Mexico still uh, or is the number one sort of in terms of demographic here. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that there are very strong Puerto Rican stories as well. Uh, you know, now we're going to be seeing, you know, and sort of going back to the article, uh, there's certain stories and films, some of which were delayed by the pandemic, you know, but West side story and in the Heights yeah. in particular, the Heights, yeah. uh, that are supposed to be coming out at some point this year, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and then, you know, obviously Steven Spielberg uh, with his up, sort of remake of the original West Side Story. Uh, and that's supposed to be highlighting some some new kind of breakout Latino roles uh, in this country. Young actors, you know, still to this day, the article points out the only Latina to ever win an Oscar was, you know, uh, a West Side Story. And yeah. so, you know, now I think we have a chance with, with this year's Oscars, plus the films and the content that's going to be released this year to really maybe start to level the playing field a little bit more, um, you know, in terms of Latino representation in Hollywood, in traditional Hollywood. Uh, but again, it's up to the storytellers from those communities to tell their stories. Uh, but again, that goes back to who are you pitching it to? How do they kind of interpret what you're saying? Um, you know, remember when we had that great interview with Gregory Allen Howard and he talked about pitching Harriet back in the 1990s, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and 27 how, years ago. Right. 27 <laughs> years ago. And how he, he basically, you know, one executive, which I guess will remain nameless that he mentioned in the L.A. Times article, <laughs> thought that <laughs> Julia Roberts would make a great Harriet. You right. Know, so, you know, and there have been moments with executives, quite frankly, in the Hispanic world that try to anglicize Hispanic roles and try to do a very similar thing. Right. Uh, and and so I think that 
there has to be change and it has to be continuous pressure from the groups. Uh, one thing that the, the article as well highlights is that, you know, Hispanics are like one of like the number one movie going audience. Talk about bringing movies back. Hispanics yeah. love Latinos love going to the movies. They, they, yeah. cause and they don't even bring themselves. They bring mommy and poppy and Theo and Thea and everybody. Come yeah, these there's no together. Yeah, when in other in other groups, you know, it's kind of like oh, I don't want to hang out with mom. I don't want to hang out right. with dad. Not in the Hispanic culture or Latin, Latinx or it's yeah. like okay, mom, dad, everybody, whole family, let's go. You know, right? They everybody Absolutely. parties together. I, I I mean, I I love that aspect of it. You know, there's no lines drawn. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all family. Right. So. It, it, it really is. Yeah, you're totally right. It is all family and it's a family experience. And so uh, and that's especially true when either the story or the characters or the main actors are Latino. And then you get even extra support from that group. I remember the one time my entire family, this is you know kind of dating me back when I was a little kid, went to the movie from, the like I said, the abuelos and abuelas all the way down to the grandkids and great grandkids was to go see the Mambo Kings in a movie theater. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, and we just kind of line. It was an entire row of us <laughs> watching this wow. movie, yeah. and it was awesome. You know, yeah. and and especially because it kind of reflected our culture, and it made sense. And so I think that there are so many opportunities for that now to create more content, both on the small, big screen and mobile screen, specifically for Latino audiences in this country. Yeah, well, I think that um, Univision and Televiso Group Grupo Televisa. They're trying to encapsulate all audiences, Univision. Uh, now, I don't know if this is a purchase because Grupa Televisa, they already had a partnership. So, correct. You know, Grupa Televisa, they were like the majority stakeholder in the Univision. I don't know, it's kind of ancestral in a way. And then all of a sudden, Univision right. then buys Grupa Televisa. Right. I don't know how that worked out, but I don't know. you know they they are one big company. They're one big family now. Yes. Yeah. So they're, I, they're officially officially together now. The biggest um, Hispanic or Latinx or Latinx or you know whatever you want to call it um, Spanish language. Let's just Spanish. That. La- yeah, that's right. But no, but the, <laughs> but it's not just Spanish language though because it's also you know a lot of it is English and Spanish right. together. Which is great. And this is something big that we talked about and we're going to get a little bit more into, you know, this whole global push and the strength of just a strong story, period. Um, But so they've come together to create the biggest company of its kind in the world. And that's tremendous. You know, there are going to be more stories coming out of uh, out of that collaboration. Right. And just kind of going back to our initial story, right, is is that this is their play into the streaming world. And, you know, according to Variety, again, Televisa Univision Union set stage for Spanish language streaming giant. So I know that uh, Univision has already kind of pushed into that world of streaming with a smaller platform. But now with this official merger, because Televisa has so many hours of content from their telenovelas to the sports content to everything else, that in a couple of years, they may have the number one standalone Spanish language streaming platform in the world. And that's necessary because, again, their biggest rival, which is Telemundo, owned by NBC Universal Comcast, has already kind of made a push into that world via Peacock. Yeah. 
And, and so they kind of have the leg up there because of their natural tie-in to the Comcast NBC Universal world. And so now Univision feeling like they have to kind of now one-up their rival uh, with this official merger with Televisa now has their own sort of stable of IP and, and again, just thousands of hours of content that they can pour into their own streamer. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to, I know, you know, some pretty big things are going to come up, come, come out of that for the Spanish speaking world, but I'm looking for big things to come out of that for the global marketplace as a whole. But before I get into the global marketplace, I do have to say that there has been some strides made in terms of representation from minority sector, Judas and the Black Messiah. I brought it up, you know, the past few episodes of Screen Heat Miami, but it really has created an indelible mark. It did have like a... a, a, a um, it's something that has changed the Oscar experience as a whole. It's been the first movie to have an all-Black production team and a majority all-Black cast to be nominated for Best Picture Oscar. That film is nominated for numerous Oscars. So when you have these records being broken that says a lot about this shift that's happening. And so I'm looking for that shift to happen in general across the board. Again, you know, we talked about Minari the last few episodes and that shift as well. The first best Oscar um, nomination Mm. for a male. And so, yeah, there are things that are changing. It's just, um, you know, I talked about having things happen on a bullet. You know, we want to kind of feel it a lot now, <laughs> you know, not not slowly, but surely we are feeling a big change, though. I mentioned how things are changing around the world. The global background, the global content world has become so much more important as the streamers are growing and becoming more international And, you know, you have to say that some of the big hits that have happened in this whole pandemic phase, I don't want to say last year, I don't want to say this year, but let's say between 2020 and 2021, some of the biggest hits have been international hits. You want to think Lupin, which is from France, in French, the lead actor is Omar Sy. You know, and that's one of the biggest hits Netflix has had ever. One of their mm-hmm. most watched shows, you know, so that's also showing that this big change and a lot of the change is not necessarily coming from top down. It's coming from bottom up because people have been receptive, you know, to these international shows, to these international properties, to these international mm-hmm pieces of content that aren't even in English, period. So, right. you know, the change is happening. Yes. You know, to, to quote another Disney IP, it's a small world, right? Small world. World's getting smaller. <laughs> 
Yes. So, so, so yeah, it, it is a small world, but I'm glad that the folks at Screen Heat Miami are part of our small world and what we sort of play now in, in the universe of entertainment and bringing you all the hottest stories from the screen, right? Absolutely. We're heading towards 50, our 50th episode. Big so. five O's coming up. Absolutely. That's going to be exciting. <laughs> Monumental. Yep. So, you know, check out our other episodes, our library. Definitely iconic people throughout. Mm-hmm. Oscar winners, Emmy winners, Emmy nominated. People that we know are going to win Emmys and Oscars and Golden Globes. And, you know, people have really... Oh, yeah done a lot in the industry across the spectrum of the industry and you know we're going to continue bringing them to you we're global yes in a sense because you can you can get us on google Podcasts, you can get us on apple Podcasts, you can get us on soundcloud spotify there's there's so many different ways to uh experience screen heat miami so i'm looking forward to our next episodes really love this one but until our next one, I'm Kevin Sharpley. I'm Jail Martinez. Screen Heat Miami. And we will hear you next week. Dale. Boom. Oh.